Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 37. We start a new chapter today, Genesis 37. And the title of our Bible study is Joseph's Painful Life Begins. Joseph's Painful Life Begins. By now in your studies, you know that the book of Genesis, all 50 chapters, can be divided up into two main sections. The sections are four great events, the creation, fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and then four great people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These four great people are often referred to as the patriarchs, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We are now in our 49th Bible study in the book of Genesis, and for the last 48 studies, we've covered a lot of biblical history. Our goal in studying the Bible is to become like Jesus and to see Jesus in the Old Testament, to understand God's will for our lives. And for me personally, this is the second time now that I've taught through Genesis, I've been amazed at the grace of God. It has jumped off the pages for me in a new way as I've been studying Genesis, this beautiful gift of the grace of God, how God won't give up. So important. How God won't give up on you, how he won't throw his children away. He won't turn his back on us, how he's always helping us and propping us up, giving us more chances to get it right giving us another opportunity and another opportunity, giving us the strength to overcome, to see things restored and reconciled. And I hope you've seen that too. Our attention from now until the end of the book now is on Joseph. Joseph was an upright young man, a wonderful example of a life lived good in the sight of God. We've all met people who have appeared to have great potential in life and have never really made it, and that's discouraging. You look at their lives and they seem to be so much hope, so much promise, but they fizzled out along the way. They have a besetting sin that they won't deal with or some attitude where they won't surrender to the Lord or won't give of themselves. They won't go farther. Sometimes it's even because they let things in their past hold them back. They don't receive the fullness of the forgiveness of their sin where they're never really able to overcome the faults and the failures or bad habits that they picked up when they were unbelievers, which we would call the flesh, sinful habits, or have bad habits they picked up along the way as believers and are just unwilling to surrender them to the Lord. Joseph's not one of them. He's not that person that doesn't live up to his potential. In many ways, he becomes a great picture and type of Jesus we want to pay attention to that along the way. Now, I have to say, a lot of us in the room today have had real challenging and difficult pasts in our lives. Whether they were sinful mistakes that we made, and we're paying the price for the consequences of our own sin, or horrible things that were done to us. Our past, all of us, 
have some place of trauma or hurt or pain in our lives. And it can be easy in response to pain to allow these things to become stumbling blocks in our own progress. Making progress in the things of God, even some you'll see will use their past pain as excuses. It doesn't always start out as excuses. It usually starts out as a good reason. There's always a good reason. There's always a good reason why there's a lack of obedience. Always a good reason why they won't go farther. Always a good reason, but good reasons often become bad excuses. Holding so many men and women back. We live in a culture, I think you're familiar with it, perhaps have even dealt with it personally. And if you have, take this in its most purest form in the freedom that God offers to you. But in our culture, we're saturated with what has been called a victim mentality, where it's very easy to play the role of a victim, especially if you have been hurt by someone and there is a part of your life where you are a victim, where something has happened to you and it's wrong and unjust and unjust. But the idea of a victim mentality is that now becomes your identity. And you live that way. And rather than taking personal responsibility for their own lives, psychologists, social workers, everyone seems to categorize you as the victim. And therefore you have a right to fail. And you have a right to fade. And you have a right to fizzle out. You have a right to be selfish. You have a right to be self-centered. And it takes things to extremes. And I believe if anyone in the Bible had a reason, a valid reason, to cry victim, it would be Joseph. So many bad things happened to him. So many difficult, real, painful things within his family, within his workplace, within so many areas of his life. He had a difficult upbringing. One of many mixed up kids. He lived in a messed up family with four moms and all sorts of drama and difficulty. He lost his own biological mom when he was just a young teenager. He had an uncle, his name was Laban, that cheated and his uncle Esau that was unpredictable. His dad wasn't always there for him, but did give him extra favoritism along the way. His own brothers, the definition of sibling rivalries, what Joseph experienced, his own brothers hated him and despised him. And these words, they have meanings. They're not just observations of the text. This is a real man who experienced real, difficult, painful difficulties in his life. He was sold into slavery, accused falsely of rape, and as we study through his life, the list will continue. But in Joseph's life, like our own, it's important to remember as we have our own list of things. We have our own issues and own difficulties. We have our own family drama, difficulties with parents, lacking parents, abandonment. I mean, sin does so much damage to the core of who you are and who I am. It, it, it begins to erase your identity and try to replace it with something else. Remember in Joseph's life, as we look ahead in the future studies, that 
God was using the tragedies of his life to shape and mold him. I know that we would rather have God do it some other way, but the tragedies in your life are being used to shape and mold you. They weren't designed to destroy him, but rather to prepare him, to humble him, to create a unique dependence that was required in his life for the present and even from the future. Never is it recorded, although I'm not saying it's not possible, but God did not see it fit for, him, for us to record a time in Joseph's life where he was bitter, where he was resentful. I mean, he may have momentarily, he may have had deep, deep things in the, being alone in prison for so many years or all the things he had to deal with, but the highlight in his life what God wants us to see is the ability of a regular human being to have a steadfast obedience in the worst of times. That we would be like the Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, that we could stand fast, therefore, with the spiritual armor of God on. And that your faith in Jesus is real. It's not some religious activity it's not because you were raised in a Christian home. It's not because you were raised in the Western culture. It's not because uh, you were born into Catholicism and then you were exposed to Jesus. And then you heard the gospel and you were born again. It's not. Be it's because God is real. He's your creator and he loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on your behalf. Jesus was buried and rose again the third day so that you and I might have a real relationship with him, one of steadfast trust and obedience. And even now, as your, feet might, as your feet might slip out from under you and your knees might be weak and your mind might be uh, assaulted with thoughts and memories and spiritual attacks and feelings like you'll never overcome and you're never good enough and on and on the list goes. God is able, and you'll see it in the life of Joseph, to give you a steadfast trust and obedience so that you can stand by faith in the God who loves you and cares for you. And even though you may stumble, the Bible says you might stumble Many times, though a man falls seven times, he'll rise again. How? By faith. And let Joseph's story burn into you the ability of God to keep a man and keep a woman strong. Strong leaders, strong women of God, strong men of God are not just born, they're made, they're developed. They mature. God builds them. Who's building your life right now? Is it the way of this culture and what they have to offer and all the goals and the accomplishments and what might be available? Or is God, are you allowing God to build your life? Are you allowing God to highlight in your life what needs to stay and what needs to go? How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself by how the Bible sees you, how God sees you through the lens of Christ or how the culture sees you or how you might even see yourself down on yourself, living in condemnation all the time, beating yourself up? Because that's what you've learned along the way. God saves us and we're raw, unrefined material. 
And he begins to immediately, takes his chisel in hand and begins chipping away at the things that won't build you up spiritually. We see all this in the life of Joseph. So pick up with me on this study through the end of the book of Genesis in verse one of chapter 37. Now Jacob dwelled in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them to his father. Jacob has taken up residence in Canaan, the area really where Abraham made his home. He's just 17 years old, this young, impressionable teenager out serving and caring for the sheep. And he saw some things in his brother's life that he felt dad need to know about. Now, I want you to mark his age, 17. It's so important to know that God loves young people. And he loves those that are teenagers now. Just a few years ago here in the church, we completely refashioned how we see our young people in this church. And no longer do we look at the kiddos in the children's ministry as the future of the church. And no longer do we look at the young people in the junior high and middle school ministry as the future of the church. And we made truly substantive changes among our high schoolers. And we don't refer to them as the future of the church any longer. You are the church. Every single age group is the church of Jesus Christ. And there is a plan and a purpose and a usefulness of every man, woman, and child of any age in the hands of God. I was thinking back this week, the testimony came back that part of the pathway of Marie and I coming to know Jesus Christ was our little son, Eddie, who would come home from Christian daycare at a wonderful Assembly of God church not too far from our apartment. He would come back all joyful with his little, we didn't go to church back then, but we dropped our son off at a church daycare and he would come home with all these little papers. And I remember the day he looked at me with his little brown eyes and he goes, Daddy, do you have Jesus in your heart? And I'm like, what are they teaching this kid? What does that mean? Where did that come from? But it was the little seeds of the gospel through my own child, where prior to that, I mean, even in that season, Marie and I were really living the lives of statistics. We were just teenage parents, lost as lost could be. And yet God was graciously and patiently keeping us together for the appointed time. Because God had a plan for our lives. If you would have showed up in that time period in our lives, you'd go, oh man, that guy is lost. That guy is lost. And you would have been right. But God would have said, that guy is lost, but I've got a plan for him. Like Saul of Tarsus. Man, stay away from Saul. Stay away from Saul. And God said, you stay close enough to Saul because I've got a plan for that man. I've got a plan that if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. And I wonder what the plan is for your life. If God would tell us, we wouldn't even believe it. Oh, you don't understand how bad it is right now and how difficult it is. And you know, they're living the life of a statistic. statistic. And I'm telling you right now, you don't need to live that life of a statistic. You can turn to Jesus right now and he'll turn your life around. And it doesn't matter what, what age you are, how old you are, especially you parents. Man, your kids really need to know you believe in them and that you have confidence in them. 
that, that you will be there to support them along the way and you'll pick them up when they fall and you'll help them understand what they don't understand and you'll give context to a world. You think the world's chaotic. What do you think your kids see and hear? Even if you hold back what's on the news. and it, Hey, man, they go to the market with you. They see what they see. They experience what they experience, but they have very little, depending on what their age is, capability of processing it with a Christian worldview, with an understanding of God's control in their lives, uh, understanding how to trust God in the chaos. And you know who they learn that from? You. And so it's important that you understand how to see the world through the lens of the scriptures and be able to have context and understanding for what you're experiencing at a much greater level. He's 17, and God loves him, just like he loves the teenagers in our church. And out of God's love, we support and encourage and are committed. They're not the future of the church. Get that out of your, out of your language. Every time you say it, pinch yourself, or you know, get a swear jar, but make that something else, and just say, hey, look, they're not the future. These kids aren't the future. They are the church. And you begin praying for, what's God's purpose? Where does God want to use them? What can we entrust to them? How can we test them as, as the future deacons or elders or pastors or leaders of the church? Letting them have the opportunity to express their faith and obedience. So here's Joseph, young, impressionable, but also obedient. He has integrity here, some honesty and practical godliness. I don't know if it was the wisest thing to rat out his brothers, but that's the choice that he made. He chose to honor the relationship with his dad over and above those that were considered his peers or his older brothers. I think speaking the truth in love, there's wisdom, but he did bring a bad report to them of his father. This section of Joseph's life is commentators disagree, and so do believers disagree, of whether Joseph's really being prideful here or he is expressing integrity. Perhaps it's a little of both, but I do know this. There, there's a lot of difficulty that arises because believers will not tell the truth about something that they see, that they will not expose the darkness that they will not say, hey, brother, this is wrong. Sister, you can't be doing this. You can't be going there. And then bringing it to the attention, you know, in this case, bringing it to the attention of his father. And I think that's the first place always to begin when you see or experience something. You take it to the father and begin to pray for the situation and ask God for wisdom. But I'm telling you, church, don't turn a blind eye to sin, the blatant sin. God has allowed you to see it for a reason. Not to approve it, but to expose the unfruitful works of darkness, the Bible says, and to walk in the light. Notice verse three. Now Israel, remember Jacob was renamed Israel. So most of the time when the Bible uses this name Israel, you have Jacob in a submissive place. He loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a tunic of many colors, and when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Israel. You say, well, why would Israel, governed by God, make the mistake of showing favoritism to a son? And why would Israel, governed by God, make the mistake of giving his son this very special 
coat. And I would just say, hey, even those that are governed by God can make big mistakes. You don't have to be a Jacob. You know, Jacob, we see him so often as the conniver and the manipulator and the person that's always working a deal. You don't have to be a Jacob to make big sinful mistakes, you know. And here he is showing favoritism. Maybe Israel here, Jacob, was trying to right the wrongs of his own father or his grandfather. You know how we feel sometimes as parents. I'm never going to do it like my mom or dad. I'm going to improve. But end up repeating some of the same mistakes our parents made nonetheless. It's just the weakness of our humanity. But Jacob grew up in a home where his dad loved Esau more and his mom loved him more. And he understood favoritism. There was tension and frustration and eventually separation. But that's what favoritism toward one child over another in your home will do every time. And because of this, he gets a special gift, it says. He was given in verse 4, excuse me, Joseph, in verse 3, he made him a tunic of many colors. Now get out of your mind the Sunday school picture of this coat that we, we so often saw, see even in Bible cartoons. It was probably very colorful, but it was different from our modern day coats. It was a long cloth about 10 feet long with a hole in the head that you could put over and, and had sleeves on it, which was very rare. You had half in the front, half in the back, tied it with a rope around the waist. And that, in, those day, in that day, the, the men wore tunics without sleeves because they couldn't afford them. This was something special that would draw attention to dad's love and favor of Joseph. It was the coat, in one dictionary it said, the coat of an Eastern chieftain, one that was usually given to the son who was destined to be the father's heir. Tunics with sleeves implied authority, rulership, and power. And I also read one place that tunics with sleeves also implied that the person wearing him would never have to do manual labor. And he was going to be free from the kind of manual labor, even though Joseph was out uh, feeding the flock there. But interesting, it was special, made him stand out. His brothers didn't get it. And I'm sure Jacob was well-intentioned, but even worse acts done with well-intentions can still do considerable damage. Jacob was directly and indirectly pitting Joseph against his other brothers, whether he realized it or not. And it's natural in verse four for them to be upset and not be able to speak peaceably to him. Verse five, now Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. <laughs> and he said to them, please hear the dream which I've dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and indeed your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. That's gonna make his brothers real happy. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now Joseph, I believe, has a simplicity here. He receives a dream. He wants to share it. I don't, again, I don't know if there's great wisdom in telling his brothers, but there is a sincerity and integrity an immaturity of his age, perhaps. 
You see, those of you that are younger in the room today, although you are the church, you also have to admit that there is maturity and growth that needs to come in your life. That's why it's good for the younger to be with the older and the older to be with the younger. You know, the younger need the wisdom and maturity of the older and the older need the faith and excitement and risk-taking of the kids, man. And just to watch them and just see them go for it and be open to new things. That's the body of Christ. And personally, I don't see so much a tattletale here other than a young man trying to sort out these things that God is giving him, the situation he has in life. I don't see him goading his brothers to making it worse. He receives a dream and he shares it, perhaps not so much in wisdom, but he shares it. Nonetheless, his brothers, they also have a problem. The focus might be on Joseph. Why are you sharing this? He step back for a second and go, well, why are his brothers getting so angry? Why are they hating him? And we already know from the situation with Shechem and the massacre, these boys, uh, they're, not, they're not the most upright young men uh, and older men for that matter. And they have issues as well, anger and hatred being one of them. Can I just say to you, church, I don't want to develop it. I've done it in other studies, but anger is nothing to ignore in your life. And I know there's always one or two among us, maybe on the radio right now, yelling at me, yeah, but the Bible says to be angry and not sin, so I can be angry at you, pastor, like I am right now, and not sin. But I mean, if that is a verse that applies to you all the time, you're probably angry in sin all the time. That's true. There is a righteous anger. You're right. Jesus demonstrated it. Paul would write to be angry and not sin. And, and it's easy to, to watch something on the news and be righteously angry at what's happening to children, what's happening in our culture, people being taken advantage of. It's true. But remember, a righteous anger, remember this, a righteous anger will be for the glory of God, not for personal opinions. That's not a righteous anger or personal offense. And a lot of times what's called righteous anger is actually just fleshly outbursts of wrath. And I'm just telling you, pay attention to it. Stay clear of it. Don't create an environment in your life where you're okay with it. Anger is like fire. You know, in the right setting, it's very, very useful. Like in fire, in your fireplace or in a fire pit, it's used greatly in a barbecue. It can be very helpful. But fire out up in the mountains or in a field, a grass field or in a farm, it could be very destructive. And anger can be very destructive. Let me read to you the New Living Translation in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. It says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Did you hear that? Anger, yeah, but it's righteous anger. Be careful. Be very, very careful. The Bible says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And what's happening in the brothers right now is not going to produce the righteousness of God. If your anger is left unchecked, it'll lead to all sorts of sin and roots of bitterness begin to take hold and it's disastrous. Verse nine. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, 
I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Um, Yeah, Jacob, actually in a few years, that's what will happen, but not yet. Verse 11, and his brothers envied him. Oh, now he's got anger, hatred, and envy. A unholy trinity of emotions that you don't want to describe your life. Hatred, envy, anger. Notice, his father kept the matter. His brothers envied him, but his father kept this matter in his mind. Another glimpse into the family this dream submitting to Joseph, the universe is bowing down to Joseph. This dream is interesting in a different way because this is the same image that's used in Revelation chapter 12. As you use the scriptures to interpret scriptures, we know that in Revelation, the sign is a reference to the entire nation of Israel. And you Bible students, you can study it for yourself as you compare these two passages together. This is a prophetic word. Joseph is... And this is, this is an interesting thing with Joseph in and of itself because he's getting an understanding of what is, what the, the encompassing what the future of his life's going to be. He's not given all the pieces of how hard it's going to be when the brothers bow down, when all of Israel comes and bows down. He's not given the whole, he's not given it piece by piece, but God's given him insight of what the end's going to look like in a time of great difficulty. Notice now in verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And so he said, here I am. And he said to him, please go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with your flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked saying, what are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they're feeding their flocks, verse 17. And the man said, they've departed from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Again, you Bible students, remember back in chapter 34, when the men of Shechem believed that they would own Jacob and all his stuff. That's what they they thought. But now we see just the opposite as the land of Shechem is being used for grazing. And dad sends his son Joseph to his brothers about a 60 mile or so journey. And this is not a highlight in the parenting life of Jacob. Either he doesn't have any idea what's going on between all the brothers, all the siblings and Joseph, or he refuses to see it. But either way, it's not a good parenting skill to not recognize this with his kids or to simply ignore it because he doesn't care. He's sending Joseph into the lion's den. He is sending Joseph to all that's going to happen to him into his brother's hands. Joseph obeys, does what his dad tells him to do, but he wanders around. He can't find his brothers, and he's met by this man. Not much is said about this man, but I appreciate the help of God. God gives Joseph help. He puts, I love how God will put certain people in our lives at certain times to help us, to guide us, and support us. Over the years, you can look at key times in your life 
and see how God has just given you a sister, given you a brother, given you a voice, given you a study, given you someone at the right time, at the right place. You didn't even know how significant they would be. And I wonder if you have ever noticed that you are that person to help a wandering boy, man, woman, girl find their way, pointing them back to what they're really need and what they're looking for. How often are we looking for God's guidance, but also how often are we stepping in and allowing God to use us in this way? Your life is significant. Even in the smaller things, you find a guy, you just find somebody wandering and you give them good direction. You give them good direction. Pick up again in verse 18. Now it says, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Why? They hate him, they're angry, and they envy him. This is the end. A conspiracy to kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let's kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. And we shall see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. They hate him, conspire to kill him. That word conspire can also be translated decided deceitfully. They didn't let it be known. But Reuben steps in to save him and has a heart for him and saved his life before they could ever touch him and had a plan to reunite him with dad. Notice verse 23. And it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. If you like to write in your Bibles, you can circle the word pit. It was probably a cistern, a dry cistern, Cisterns were dug into the ground to collect water. So it was a dry pit, a dry cistern. <clears throat> and it says there was no water in it, verse 25. They sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, verse 25. There was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to, J to Egypt. Now Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother and our flesh. Well, thanks, Judah. Let's sell him. He's our brother. And remember, what does Judah's name mean? Praise. And this is someone that was born to praise unto God. And he's selling his brother, thinking he's doing them a favor by not killing him. And he had some leadership among his brothers stronger than Reuben because his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by so that the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. 20 shekels of silver. I want you to understand something here that that would amount to two shekels a person for this two shekels a person. 
That's what they got out of this. But you know what they really got? A conscience that would never let up. A conscience that would eat at them and plague them for many years into the future. They wouldn't be able to get out from under it. Verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit and indeed Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes, which is a sign of mourning and grief. He returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more and I, where shall I go? And so they took Joseph's tunic and they killed a kid of the, mark that, they killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood and they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. The Midianites sold him to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. Reuben is devastated, probably thinks Joseph left the pit to go tell dad about it. And these are the first pangs of conscience beginning in Reuben. But he comes to find out that they take a goat and kill it and mix it, would mix the blood on the tunic. And I asked you to mark that word goat because how did they deceive dad? By using a goat. And how did Jacob deceive his dad? Same way. Turn back to chapter 27 with me. So I know it's been a few weeks, but it's only been a few chapters. Genesis chapter 27. You know how the world says what goes around? You know what the Bible says? Though what a man soweth, that is what he'll reap. Notice beginning in verse 8 of chapter 27. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring from me there two choice kids of the goats and I'll make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. And you'll take it to your father that he may eat and that he may bless you before his death. And it goes on with Jacob and Rebecca with his mom, you know, trying to deceive dad. But it started with the goats. And now he's being deceived with a goat. The scripture is in Galatians chapter six and verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And that's the key. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Jacob mourns for his son many days. And notice the hypocrites back in, verse, in chapter 37. All of his sons and his daughters uh, come to comfort him in his mourning. And that reminds us of the deep hypocrisy in their lives. They're just liars. Is it possible to be in the company of the saints and to meet just rank liars? Yes. 
It's possible. When you allow the flesh to rise up and you feed your flesh, you mix in a little anger, a little envy, maybe a little hatred, a little jealousy, all of the works of the flesh, you just don't know who you're going to become. But it won't be reflective of who Jesus is. It's so important that we walk in the spirit not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. That we yield ourselves, even tonight, even as we gather, you're opening yourself for the Holy Spirit to help you walk in the spirit. I know we're at Bible study and I know we're just listening to something on the radio, but that's not true. You're not just doing anything. You are in the best place of submitting yourself to the word of God, opening yourself to words that would encourage you, words that would strengthen you, words that would help you, words that will grow you, words that will stick with you, words that will fill you and develop you and grow you in the things of the Lord. As we come to the end of chapter 37, so many bad things happen to Joseph, but it's just the beginning. Because by the time we end, he's a young man, free, living in his home, experiencing the joy of the favoritism of his dad, dealing with his brothers a little bit. By the time we end the chapter, he's been sold to these Ishmaelites, probably mixed with Midianite traders that head in now to Egypt. And now he's sold to this officer. He's just a piece of property. And it's going to get harder for him difficult and dark days, but times that God will use nevertheless. So Father, I pray that sin would not make us. We would not yield ourselves to sin. We would not yield ourselves to our flesh. Even tonight, it's a word from you, God. There's a word to us as parents not to play favoritism. There's a word to all of us not to be controlled by anger or envy or strife not to allow murder as Jesus talked about. If we hate our brother, we've already murdered them in our hearts. God, that we would be in a place and a position where your Holy Spirit can speak to us, that we would grow in your grace tonight, that we would not forsake the gathering together as some do, but that like we used to sing in that song, Lord, we'll be blessed because we came. You have a reward for obedience, a word or two or three, a prayer with a brother or sister, being reminded of the suffering church, singing together, putting a new song in our hearts, hearing a testimony of victory and contentment with those that are struggling and suffering among us. May you have your way with us, Lord, as we study the life of Joseph. There are those among us that have a hard life too, God. It's harder than most. And yet, you're using it as a testimony of your faithfulness and your goodness. And just thinking, God, of those seasons in our life where you could look at our life and just go, man, I, I just don't know any way out of this. I don't think I, I, I just don't see it. I, I don't even want it. And yet, God, you acted at just the right time. Just like Paul said to Galatians, at just the right time time. And may you give us strength and patience for just the right time. In Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. 
For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week. We'll be right back. 